1: And now to give us a little bit of perspective when we see that the S&P 500 is down 12% for the year, the NASDAQ down 10%, the Dow Jones Industrial Average posting a decline of 11.5%. We went looking under the tree for someone who is optimistic and luckily we didn't have to go very far edward stringham joins us now here in our studios he is the president of the american institute for economic research edward stringham merry post christmas and happy <laughs> boxing day to <laughs> Thank you. you so much i'm so glad that you're here because you are optimistic about the global economy in 2019 Give us some reasons why we should put the humbug aside. (laughs) So I would say uh,
2: potentially. Okay, potentially. We (laughs) got to live with a little hope. There's there's a joke in the uh, the Soviet Union. uh, the optimist and the pessimist. The the pessimist says, "Oh, things are so bad they can't get any worse." The optimist says, "No, don't be so pessimistic. Things can get a lot worse." Ah, I see. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, well, that's
1: the, so we hope that's in the past. So
2: I I would say that there's a lot of things that could go wrong in two thousand nineteen, but there's just so much that could go well. So we're at right now record low unemployment rates, the Correct. lowest we've seen in the past. 50 years, we've seen a lot of increase in, uh, certain sectors of the economy, like the financial sector due to, I would say deregulation of the economy over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of strength in our business due to lowering taxes and increasing corporate, uh, opportunity. On the other hand, <laughs> there's a lot that is actually interfering, getting people upset. I would say things like the trade wars are scaring people. They're hammering markets in China. If you look at the stock indexes for, for the Chinese stock markets, I feel very bad for them. So, you know, there's a down lot Down more of, than 14%. The Hang Seng is down more than
1: 14% this year.
2: It's just unbelievable. So that's what we would predict, however, when we see that people can gain from trade, and then we see that that could be taken away from this, that's exactly what we would predict is decreases in our major trading partner stock markets.
1: All right, I'm going to play the optimist for you here because <laughs> I'm wondering whether the sort of uh, imagination of investors has run away with them when they think about the repercussions from the trade confrontation between the United States and China, between the United States and the European Union, because it seems to be, at least let's go down the list, be a little specific, the issue of intellectual property is one that no one, at least in the United States, Republican or Democrat, seems to have an issue with. Everybody sees the perspective that China has been stealing or at least misappropriating intellectual property not only from the United States, but from other countries.
2: It's, I think, a very interesting uh, issue that has come up in light of these discussions about tariffs. And a lot of people say, oh, it's really not about restrictions on trade, it's these other things. But when the president came out a few weeks ago and said, I am a tariff man, I think that that really shows deep down that he might be actually a tariff man. And that, to me, does worry me. So there's a lot of these, I would say, You don't think it's
1: just a, a political stance I, in order to get the I, Chinese to change the way I, they do business?
2: I, I don't know. A lot of my friends actually argue that that's what he's doing. It's part of his— part of the deal and he's really just bargaining and if that's ends up being the case and we end up with lower tariffs all around then i will be thrilled and say yes 2019. i think if they were to actually take their foot off of the throat of international trade the government would take its foot off the throat of international trade we would have a huge increase in markets and that also could be potentially part of his strategy to actually open up, unleash markets at a later date. What do
1: you make of the argument that
2: the reason
1: we've seen this steady sell-off in stocks is directly related to the U.S. Federal Reserve, the increase in interest rates and the wind down, the ongoing wind down of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet?
2: That's another very interesting, complicated issue. We've got a system where the Federal Reserve controls so much of the important parts of our economy, specifically the interest rate. We had a series of very loose monetary policy for over 10 years and people saying, we've got to move away from that. We've had what I would say are very artificially low uh, interest rates for so long. And the Federal Reserve said, basically, we can't continue this. And they've been easing off of this, what I would call this overly loose monetary policy. So I think it had to happen at one point we're going into this direction, and then the question is: Is this going to be destabilizing or destabilizing of the economy, or not?
1: Do you believe it will be destabilizing? I mean, is really is this level of interest rates? I mean, you take a look at you know three percent for the thirty-year, and all right, the, take a look at the two-year at two point five five percent. That doesn't seem like an outsized. Increase in interest uh, rates yeah, I t- at all.
2: I totally agree with you that we're we're talking about, you know, a quarter percent increase last week. And it's like, oh, the sky is falling. I just don't think that that is explaining. Is that the
1: excuse for why people sell, but they don't that, have I mean, any the other reason? The
2: president said <laughs> just the other day, uh, he, said, he said the only bad thing going on in the economy is the Federal Reserve. And I think that's trying to put point the finger too much at the Federal Reserve. I'm not uh, saying the Federal Reserve is great, but to, to say that they're responsible for all woes in the economy, I just don't buy it.
1: Well, they can't rack up a trillion dollar deficit all by themselves, right? I mean, they need help from the fiscal <laughs> side <laughs> yeah. from the government. Do you believe that the increase in the debt and the deficits that the government is, the US government is running, you think that this is going to really hurt the economy in 2019?
2: So this is, I would call, a long-term problem. We've got unsustainable deficits, unsustainably growing debt. And I think the longer this lasts, the more we're going to have to be paying on interest, servicing, debt. But I do think that this is going to come in gradually, and it's going to be more and more problematic. But I don't—I can't predict if This future, is when everybody
1: who is listening has already
2: retired, and their <laughs> children
1: and grandchildren will deal with it.
2: Right, so I don't think— uh, t- tonight there's going to be this massive crisis. But but over time, certainly, as we go more and more into the realm of higher and higher debt, that is going to be increasingly a problem. Okay,
1: so you've talked about the labor picture, which means more people working. You see help-wanted signs. It's difficult to hire workers for certain jobs. Do you believe that that will help the economy in 2019? Because if you're working, you're paying taxes, and that money also goes into the economy because you got to spend
2: it sure yeah there's a, a very good labor market right now there's increases in wages and uh, by all accounts that's actually very positive the more people we have hired the more as you said the people are working the more they're producing the more everybody has
1: so what so to what do you really ascribe the gloom that seems to have settled on financial markets whether it's the debt market treasuries leverage
2: loans Equities. Won. Yeah, I, I don't I don't consider things like leverage loans to be the problem. I consider the problem to be policy. Uncertainty of bad government policy can really throw a wrench into things. It can interfere with businesses plans. If all of a sudden uh, the inputs of their products are 50% more expensive, American corporations are now put at a competitive disadvantage worldwide. Consumers themselves are going to be buying fewer goods when they have to pay higher tariffs. So I certainly hope that this trade war doesn't balloon and and explode. But uh, it's something that can cause a lot of alarm to, to anybody.
1: All right. So I'm just going to before we let you go, I just got to assume that you came here either in some vehicle or you've taken a plane in the last couple of days. We've got oil right now at $43 a barrel trading on the NYMEX. It's up 2% today, but that's de minimis because it's 86 cents higher. If oil stays at 43, is that going to be good for consumers and good for the economy and good for the airlines and so on?
2: That's a really difficult question. We've got so many prices in the world and stock markets prices are determined by all factors, including current input prices. So I think that um, uh, the oil oil is an important factor in the economy. But I think there's so many other bigger, more important things that are in our control. The oil markets is kind of outside of our control in the short run, at least. But what is in our control is policy. Economic policy matters. All right. Well done. Thanks very much. Edward Stringham is the president of the American
1: Institute for Economic Research. Ivan Feinseth, Tigris Financial Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research, joins us now. Ivan, it looks like a good open today, but what about a close for the year? Do you think that we're going to be able to rebound from these pretty steep sell-offs in all the indexes? Well, I think now is the time to take advantage of the after
0: Christmas sale on Wall Street. I mean, there are some incredible values here. There's been, unfortunately, there's been a huge disconnect between how well the economy is doing and now how badly the stock market is doing and there's been some near term issues i mean the concern over the um trade situation with china now the um uh government shutdown and um some concerning tweets from president trump about the lack of confidence in the fed and uh you know his and uh, wanting to potentially remove
1: uh, Jerome Powell as the head of the fed
0: yes and his statement of the fact that the Fed doesn't understand financial markets is is a little odd. That's like saying the doctor who's about to operate on you doesn't understand medicine. So um, some of these near-term things have been disappointing, and uh, two of the things that President Trump had going for him was the strength of the economy. Everybody liked the Trump economy and the Trump stock market, and, and unfortunately the Trump rally has faded. However, I still believe that the underlying economic strength in the U.S. is still strong. And you know, just look at the uh, strong holiday season that we had, and uh, for the most part, stocks are cheaper than they were a year ago at this time. It's
1: Surely, but cheaper. but I gotta press you, Ivan. I mean, did you see this sell-off coming? No, not not to this extreme point. Okay, no, so if you didn't see this me by uh, surprise, uh, okay. So my point is, if you didn't see it coming, many people didn't see it coming. You got a lot of company. Is it possible that the stock market and investors? like, you know, the the bookmakers, are telling the public something that they didn't know before, that they really are concerned about something in the future, and that it is a future-looking machine that sometimes gets it right.
0: Well, there is a lot of concern amongst investors about the decline in stocks, but they are more upset that the market is down and not more upset that, that not upset that they believe the economy is slowing you know everybody says the economy still looks good from various people's vantage point of you know the companies they run or the jobs they have or the situations that they're in they still say the economy is good but this sell off in the stock market has been somewhat technical i think we've seen a lot of uh, margin selling recently and a lot of uh, forced selling by Uh, overleveraged hedge funds, and a lot of funds are in net redemption now, which has caused a lot of forced selling. And there's a a lot of panic out
1: there. Explain, hang on a second, Ivan, explain how that uh, forced redemptions work, because if you invest in an alternative such as a hedge fund, it's not like you can just call them up on the phone or send them an email, whatever it is, and say, I want to get out, send me my check. It takes a while, doesn't it?
0: Well, usually some have a you know, minimum of 30 day notice to redeem. Others have a periodic redemptions that you have to uh, get in line for. But I think with the poor performance in hedge funds that we've seen, um, they in theory underperform on the way up because they're hedged, but they're supposed to protect you on the way down, and many haven't. And they are getting a lot of redemptions uh, for the end of the year and have been forced to sell. Also, a lot of hedge funds use leverage. And they have been in a significant deleveraging process.
1: What do you make of the argument that the reason that stock prices have fallen is directly correlated to the Federal Reserve withdrawing liquidity and buying power in the marketplace?
0: They've raised rates and they have been contracting their balance sheet, but I don't really believe it has been a huge reduction in liquidity. I think the point that uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin was making on Sunday night with his calls to the heads of all the big banks was that there is plenty of liquidity out there. So we really, th- there's not really a liquidity issue. I think we've seen a buyer strike. People have just pulled back from buying, and when you have a lot of shares being dumped on the market, prices move downward quickly, but uh, I don't think that there's
1: A lack of liquidity in any of the financial markets so where do you believe on the skyline okay so where do you believe the new money will come from in order to boost stock prices because the only reason they go up is someone else is willing to pay more for the same share
0: well that's a good question the first flow of money will begin on the middle of January when people start to get paid again and uh, start to contribute into their 401ks because um, you know, during the course of a year, you may reach the limit, and that for some people can be anywhere from the middle of the year toward, you know, later on in the year. So we start. So
1: maxing out, out your 401 contribution, you think that has an effect? That's number one.
0: Yes, yes. So you will see um, money flow back into 401ks, which goes back into the stock market on a periodic basis. Which okay. Is one of the best ways to invest. Uh, the second catalyst for the upside, I, I believe, will be. Q4 earnings which we start to get in you know toward the end of January and the and the and 2019 outlooks and we have not seen a huge reduction in corporate outlooks in fact most CEOs are still very optimistic for 2019 they haven't cut their outlook back
1: so you're looking at earnings being a boost when we yeah. receive those fourth quarter results
0: I, I think there's you know, two main catalysts. The flow of money that always begins in January into pensions and 401ks is always positive for the market. Second is uh, I think that earnings will be a positive catalyst. The third is I think we will get some type of um, trade deal with China. I've said for a long time President Trump had the upper hand for a while as the Chinese stock market has declined significantly since the trade battle began in February and now the decline in our market which is you know partially caused by the uncertainty over trade with China I think Tr- President Trump may be a little bit more flexible in his negotiations uh and he's probably as stubborn as President Xi Jinping is too. So you have two stubborn negotiators that, you know, are being forced to the table because of current economic and market situations in their own countries.
1: Speaking with Ivan Feinseth, he is Tigris Financials Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research. Ivan, are you surprised that there are not more bullish calls for equity, particularly when you see the price of fossil fuel of crude oil at 42 dollars a barrel the one thing i have been right on in recently has been i've said
0: oil was going to drop and i believe oil will go closer to 40 dollars than many people calling for 60 dollars and lower oil prices is another positive thing for consumer discretionary
1: spending so
0: that also is helpful to the economy why
1: do That's, you think oil prices are going to hit 40
0: because uh, they uh, will not be able to support prices, meaning OPEC, with the recently announced um, production cuts. And uh, the U.S. is now a wash in oil, and we are the world's biggest producer of oil now, and the shale oil that keeps coming online is also helping keep prices lower. Russia, while they're not an OPEC member, they meet with OPEC and try to have a consensus on production because, obviously, they have an interest in the price of oil, but they will pump what they want and when they want. And we just have a lot of supply also company countries like Venezuela is in desperate need to cash, though so they they want to pump as much as they can so um, the world is awash in oil. It's supply and demand, and right now we have an oversupply, which should take prices further, you know, lower.
1: Right. Well, it, it, just to give you 30 seconds, and, and I'd like you to spend some more time with us uh, and because I want to get your uh, sort of specific views on the market, uh, which sectors. But is it possible that the decline in oil prices is linked to slowing demand and that's weaker economic output outside the United States?
0: Well, there has been some concern that the decline in oil
1: would be an indication of economic weakness. My guest is Ivan Fine He is the chief investment officer and director of research for Tigris Financial. Ivan, it has been a brutal fourth quarter for stock investors. We know that we are approaching a 20% decline in the S&P 500, currently at 2351. We'll wait to see what the open brings us. You had mentioned that you are bullish and you believe that there is a buying opportunity. So if you are an investor who has money to invest, where would you specifically be looking to put it to work?
0: The first sector would be the tech sector it's still the engine of growth for our economy and pretty much most global economies. And the sell-off there has been the most dramatic. Companies like Amazon and Apple, and um, Intel and Microsoft and NVIDIA, uh, and along with many of the other chip stocks like Skyworks, Corvo, and uh, Qualcomm. I think there are huge bargains there. And then retail, Costco, uh, Best Buy, uh, Target, Uh, Nordstrom's and Macy's, and then in the industrials, Caterpillar, Boeing, Alcoa. um, There's just a a tremendous number of companies that have good growth, pay good dividends, and have a huge amount of opportunity ahead of them.
1: All right, let's take uh, each one of these, if we can, just in a little bit more detail. You mentioned technology. You spoke about Amazon.com, of course, retail plus technology. Also, you mentioned chip stocks and Apple. I didn't hear Facebook in there. Oh, yes,
0: I forgot Facebook.
1: Facebook. Yes. You'd be buying Facebook at these levels. (laughs) Absolutely. You don't believe that there's any concern about government regulation?
0: Um. Not, I'm not overly concerned about it. Uh, I think that they are doing a lot to... T- the t- two key issues are fake accounts and um, pretty much false news. And they have hired about 20,000 people to oversee compliance and uh, are heavily using artificial intelligence to ferret out a lot of the issues. But the most important driver is they have 2.6 billion monthly active users and advertisers want to go to where the customers are and the uh, uh, digital advertising continues to grow because you can use technology and target and measure your return on in in advertising invested dollar and facebook offers the best value and opportunity to the advertisers and that is the key
1: all right so at a hundred and twenty five dollars a share you're a buyer of facebook absolutely and facebook is
0: now at the cheapest level since the history of it being a public
1: company all right so you're positive on facebook make the case for apple when we've heard from many analysts that the transition from hardware sales of iphones to service revenue and software is going to be a challenge
0: well, I don't know if it's going to be a challenge. It continues to happen. Uh, iPhone sales are slowing slightly, but they sold f- 46 million phones in the last quarter. They have a active iPhone user base of 750 million that they can sell additional services to. They could go to a subscription model for the sale of the phones where... Uh, most people do buy their phones on a monthly basis as part of the contract with their service. They can go to a, you know, Amazon Prime type of membership for streaming media, for iTunes. Um, to, they can also include the Apple Care Warranty on a, for a monthly fee as part of the purchase of the phone. There's a lot they can do to monetize this huge Apple customer base and they continue to sell product, they continue to go through the ongoing upgrade cycle of the phones, they still sell Macs, they still sell iPads. Um, the demand for their products
1: is strong. All right, so bullish on Facebook, bullish on Apple. Turn your attention to industrials, you mentioned them. Just give us one industrial stock, I'll give you about uh, 30 seconds. What industrial company would you most like to own? Boeing. Boeing, they um, just raised yes. their dividend, is that part of the story? Yeah. Yes. They just increased their
0: dividend 20%. They just increased their buyback by $2 billion from $18 billion to $20 Plane, de- They have a backlog of plane demand for the next 20 years. Few companies have that kind of visibility. Uh, they just got a 50-plane a, a order from a uh, subsidiary of uh, Saudi Arabia Airlines uh, worth almost $6 billion. Uh, the uh 737 max remains their best-selling phone uh, excuse me best-selling plane they've had no loss of orders since the unfortunate lion air issue which is now coming out It was amazing all
1: right he's got a trifecta we've got to leave it there ivan fine seth chief investment officer director of research tigris financial bullish on boeing apple and facebook If you happen to go through the lobby of just about any casino, perhaps the Tropicana in Atlantic City, what will you find? Signs that direct you to place your bets for sports. And here to tell us all about the industry is none other than our own expert, Brian Egger. He is our Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Gaming Analyst. And you can follow him on Twitter, as we all do, at Eggernomics. All right, at Agronomics, give us the lowdown on where you can legally bet on sports.
3: Yeah, there's been this remarkable proliferation of where you can actually bet on sports. So uh, in the last year, actually since May, when the Supreme Court repealed the federal ban on sports betting, it now exists in Delaware, New Jersey, West Virginia, Mississippi, uh, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, and also one track in New Mexico. So it's seven other states other than Nevada.
1: All right. So those seven other states, does the amount of money that is bet in those seven other states come close to what is bet in Vegas?
3: So it's starting to, and you really have to distinguish between the amount uh, bet in Vegas uh, as opposed to the amount that actually is retained as revenue. And that amount in Vegas actual annually is about... 250 million dollars as revenue about 5% of the amount wagered and so far in New Jersey if you extrapolate the last few months for the brick and mortar sports books there it's been um, a similar uh, pace of revenue so far
1: all right now i'm looking at the sign that exists at the tropicana in atlantic city it's a william hill sign there the sports book you've got basketball soccer tennis golf baseball But the biggest, the one that's most out front is football. Tell us about betting on football.
3: Football is really the major sport. If you look at Nevada, the most well-developed and long-standing market, Uh, football accounts for about 36% of annual sports betting revenue, and and then basketball comes next at about a third of the total. So football is really uh, the big one, which is why these books wanted to get up and running if possible before the advent of the football season.
1: Is there a dichotomy between the market for sports betting when it comes to physical betting, meaning going to a casino and placing the bet versus online betting using your smartphone?
3: There is. Now, the online betting markets vary in size by state. A lot of these states are new, but if you look at New Jersey, Uh, the month of November, the most recent data we've got. Uh, It's kind of interesting because there are seven brick and mortar, uh, seven uh, casino affiliated sports books and only two racetracks. Yet, those two racetracks, Meadowlands and Monmouth Park, account for 40% of uh, the total uh, sports betting revenue. So, so far, um, the on uh, the racetracks are winning disproportionately, and uh, the online portion is also about forty percent. So the big winners so far are the racetracks and the online betting sites, which are about about uh, 45 percent of the total.
1: Okay. Now, as someone that has been following this industry for a long time, do you believe that the actual physical betting locations, the casinos, and the companies that provide the infrastructure to do it, are they really going to benefit or is it possible that we just have an online explosion like we've had in the retail world?
3: So it's it's a really interesting question because sports betting historically has only accounted for about two percent of the total gaming revenue uh, coming out of Nevada. Uh, the rest comes from slot machines and table games. Uh, likewise, in New Jersey, it's been kind of in the order of kind of three Four percent. So as a revenue generator, uh, because the casino has only retained five percent of dollars wagered as win, it's comparatively small compared to the the, the slot machines and the table games. Uh, but it's really important as an ancillary traffic driver during those big. Uh, sports betting weekends, football weekends, NCAA basketball, semifinals, World Series, et cetera, there's a lot of traffic uh, flowing through from the sports books into the casinos. So it's I think it's actually more important as a traffic driver of casino activity than as an actual revenue source per se.
1: Now, I know that you spent some time at the Tropicana in Atlantic City recently. What did you see? Okay.
3: And I should say, I spend most of my time at my desk doing analysis. Of for course, you do. Of course. Uh, but what I saw was we were there. That's during why our... you
1: have the, the one arm band next exactly. to your screen. Exactly.
3: Yes. Um, so, uh, what, what I saw there was, although it wasn't a very busy time, we saw a lot of sports books. It's interesting that William Hill, the UK bookmaker, um, has so far three sports books in New Jersey, three physical ones: uh, the Ocean Resort in Tropicana in Atlantic City, and in Monmouth Park, the racetrack. So a lot of the way these sports books have kind of emerged is through these alliances between racetracks and casinos and commercial gaming markets, and some of the big betting houses like William Hill, and of course the daily fantasy sports companies really involved also.
1: I want to go back to something you said about the five percent take that the casinos. Have when it comes to the revenue, right? That they get about five percent. Is that materially different than the table stakes as well as the slot machine business?
3: So it's probably similar to the uh, the hold rate, if you will, on slot machines. The table game hold rates are are a little higher, you know. But that kind of activity is determined by uh, competition. Nevada is a fairly competitive and developed sports market. But the reason you know we kind of point this out is if you were to look at the theoretical size of sports betting, uh, look at the amount of illegal betting that has taken place in this country and assign that 5% rate to it. You know, theoretically there's seven to $8 billion of revenue flowing to these legal sports books. But that's only if people give up their legal bookies and of all these states legalize sports betting. Is there a potential
1: for more states to offer this kind of legal sports
3: betting? Yeah, there is. I think we're only in the early innings of the legalization. Uh, process, to use a sports betting metaphor. So, so far, we've got recently, within the last week, Washington, D.C., getting ready to roll it out next year. New York State, likely to next year, as is Massachusetts likely to consider it. Uh, And and Michigan had a um, kind of a weight development with an introduction of a sports betting bill that might gain traction during the 2019 legislative session.
1: Brian, if I were to say to you 10 years ago that there would be legal sports betting in the United States, not just in Vegas, but throughout the country, and you twin that with the legal cannabis market in the United States, would you have said I was crazy?
3: I wouldn't have said you were crazy, but you would have in fact, great foresight if you thought that was true. Well, yes. Now well, bear, bear in mind that the uh, you know the various states have kind of taken upon themselves to legalize recreational cannabis, whereas this is actually a Supreme Court case that correct. opened floodgates. You know, this is it may reflect changing social opinion and permissiveness, but this is something that New Jersey has been trying to get through since the early '90s to overturn the ban that really restricted. Um, sports betting in a large part to Nevada. So it's really the Supreme Court that kind of came to the rescue of the commercial gaming industry.
1: All right, the reason I bring this up is because of the revenue from the taxes that both of these activities would bring to the state's treasuries. Is that having an effect?
3: It, you know, it's, it, it's potentially significant over time and the tax rates vary by state as they do for the casino industry. It's about 8% in New Jersey. It's as high as 34% of sports betting revenue in Pennsylvania. Uh, And obviously, from the perspective of the sports books, the lower the the tax rate, the better. But it is going to be an incremental source of of gaming revenues. Bear in mind, again, for markets like Nevada, 98% of that gaming revenue pie is coming from slot machines, table games, all the traditional stuff.
1: Okay. We are, of course, getting to that point in the season when people are looking towards the Super Bowl. Any estimates to how much money is going to be bet this year on the Super Bowl?
3: I don't have an estimate, Uh, and the NCAA, uh, actually it's interesting, the American Gaming Association comes out with an estimate every year about how much money will we bet on the NCAA basketball men's regional semifinals. That, the Super Bowl, is certainly really big seasonal events, sports betting is by its nature, uh, very seasonal. So I don't have an estimate, but what's unusual about uh, this first, this next Super Bowl and NCAA tournament in 2019, it'll be the first time these events have taken place amid the widespread proliferation of legalized sports betting.
1: This means you're just gonna be a lot busier this year. (laughs) Uh, Finally, you mentioned William Hill, UK company that has a partnership with the Tropicana and many other casinos. Are there US companies that are good at doing this?
3: So, U.S. companies um, are, are involved. There ga- there are entities out there like um, uh, Scientific Games, right. uh, SG Interactive. Uh, there are the sports betting um, uh, sports, daily fantasy sports companies. There's SB Tech in conjunction with Scientific Games. There's a number out there that are involved, but William Hill, kind of really important. Um, as are, and I mentioned one other thing too, you talk about U.S. versus international. Uh, Paddy Power Betfair now has a controlling stake uh, in Fanduel, so we're really seeing this convergence of the traditional UK European betting houses with uh, the daily fantasy sports companies working alongside the casinos. Thank you very much, Brian Edgar.
1: As always, fascinating, interesting, and worthwhile. Bloomberg Intelligence senior gaming analyst. Well, if you're an American consumer, chances are your email inbox is filling up with what is called Boxing Day sales or post-Christmas sales flyers. Here to tell us about the state of the retail industry, Dana Telsey, Telsey Advisory Group Chief Executive and Chief Research Officer. Dana, the sales are already starting, aren't they?
4: They are. The sales are definitely beginning today. As As you mentioned, everyone's email boxes are filling up. But the early read on holiday season sales from MasterCard from November 1st through December 24th of 5.1 percent was right in line with our forecast of 5.2 percent. So it seems like we'll have a good season and now we want to see inventory levels cleared and what the margins look like.
1: Okay, but that 5 percent, I understand, comes with a little bit of a footnote for department stores because the department store take actually fell more than 1 percent
4: it was down 1.3% of department stores. And keep in mind, you had a lot of closures, whether it was the Bontons closures, some of the Macy's closures, or JCPenney. I think that when you look at the apparel stores, they were up 7.9%, which is one of the best we've seen out there. All in all, whether it was the slight decline in department stores, the increase in apparel stores, the consumer had more dollars to spend, the products were innovative, and we pulled out a good season this doesn't mean that 2019 we're entering with an easy glide path it's going to be more challenging in 2019 than it was in 18.
1: all right we're going to get to 2019 in just a second but i want to find out from you what do you believe was the hottest offering in retail where what was the trend
4: i think the trend you definitely had some of the electronics items like the alexas out there drones were also quite popular dad sneakers were very popular and also denim jeans continue to be strong we're fortunate that we had a cooler season this year than in years past outerwear whether it was Canada Goose whether it was North Face we definitely saw strength in outerwear and let's not forget Uggs that goes along with that
1: okay so that seems to be something that is correlated a little bit to the weather How about the online world? That was an increase, at least from the MasterCard survey, the Spending Pulse survey, that was an increase of more than 19% for online sales.
4: Yes, and that was better, a little touch better than the Adobe forecast also of 18%. So it was a solid online selling season too. And I think the thing to take away is online and bricks and mortar go together. And you're seeing brands overall and retailers, the combination of the two is what was powerful. We saw buy online, pick up in store, drive more traffic, and drive more sales. I think that's going to be one of the takeaways of the holiday 2018 season.
1: If you are a new retailer or looking to establish a retail brand, what do you take away from the results of this season?
4: that you have a customer who's interested, if it's innovative and new, if you have a loyalty program and participate in social media to drive awareness. There's dollars out there for you to capture if you can create interest.
1: Okay, now let's talk about the potential for interest in retail in 2019. What are gonna be the big themes?
4: The themes of retail, I think there's three words that capture the themes of retail. Where's the margin? i think we have a little bit more headwinds to face than tailwinds the headwinds whether it's tariffs the uncertainty of tariffs the potential for category extensions in tariffs you have expense pressures from freight and labor and you have comping the comp comparisons are more challenging in 2019 than 18. on the tailwind side i've got a full employment economy with a consumer has money to spend whereby withholding should be a benefit, particularly in the first half of 2019. I still have some lower taxes, but there are more challenges. And in 2019, you may not get the same rates of earnings growth that you had in 2018.
1: All right. Now, to go back to your point about where are the margins, are there specific companies that you track that are doing a better job of keeping those margins or expanding them?
4: When you think about margins and and where they're growing, we're seeing companies like Lululemon continue to show nice margin increases, and that's a real benefit for them. I think what you're seeing, particularly in the top line and some of the off-pricers, is certainly encouraging. What we're hearing about from some of the companies where there's catalysts, I mean, the catalysts are potentially closing stores at Gap and, for example, leading to less losses, could help the margins over time.
1: Dana Telsey, is there a case to be made for direct mail catalogs twinned with online offerings and in-store pickup, this three-legged retail strategy?
4: I think catalogs are tough to go by. I think that the world of paper these days is consolidating into online, and we're seeing whether it's from magazines, whether it's from catalogs, The first thing consumers look at in the morning is their phones. The last thing they look at at night is their phones. Capture the consumer where they are on their phones and in physical stores with experiences.
1: I'd like to get your views on home furnishings, companies such as Wayfair, and then perhaps at the other end, Restoration Hardware, or it used to be Restoration Hardware, now just RH.
4: When you think about what RH is doing... They're really creating the experience. The restaurants combined with the selling of furniture, where they have aspects for designers to come in and have their offices there to bring clientele is compelling. And I think that they're really creating a destination. Wayfair, and it will be interesting to see, does Wayfair ever get combined with a physical retailer? That combination to be powerful. And probably one of the most powerful home retailers lately over the past few years that's taken share is home goods what tjx has done with home goods and home sense is exciting it's profitable and it's driving inventory turns and more brands are selling in their stores
1: do you see any big changes to the world of fast retail for apparel companies such as h&m and zara
4: i do see changes there I think it's become more competitive in that landscape. I think we're going to see H&M become a more fine-tuned machine, given the fact that their inventory levels have been too high. I think that you have other companies competing on price and also quality stepped up a bit, so there's more competition. The old navies of the world are doing quite a good job, and you're also seeing when companies have targeted sales, it's taking some share from some of the fast fashion retailers. I think they have an evolution ahead of them in order to become more competitive.
1: Thank you very much for spending time with us as always. Dana Telsey, Telsey Advisory Group, Chief Executive and Chief Research Officer, speaking about the world of retail and shopping. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe
0: and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.